When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You'll also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We recently released bonus episodes on No Time to Die and Lamb, and we'll be dropping one soon on the David Lynch Dune and the new season of Succession. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Keith Phipps. Genevieve Kosky. And Tasha Robinson. So last week, I had the pleasure of heading out into a rain-slickened noir evening and seeing a 35mm print of the new Edgar Wright film Last Night in Soho at the Music Box Theater here in Chicago, along with a nice crowd of fully vaccinated people. And I thought... There's no better time to be alive than in the year 2021. I think we can all agree on that, right? And yet, and yet, like Thomas and McKinsey in that movie, I couldn't help but fantasize about going back in time to the 1960s, stepping into an old-fashioned single-screen movie palace and experiencing some of the great films of the period when they came out. Well, yeah. We just did Lawrence of Arabia last week. It would have been pretty special to see the premiere of that one. And from that same time period, you got the huge influx of movies from the French New Wave, like Breathless and Jules and Jim and Fellini's Eight and a Half and La Dolce Vita, plus Buñuel and Antonioni. Yeah, I can imagine being there for the first showing of 2001 A Space Odyssey or Curse Was Ujimbo and High and Low or The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, for that matter. Then there's Redline 7000, Pocketful of Miracles, Skidoo. Uh, hold up. Howard Hawks, Frank Capra, and Priminger are all great directors, but even their most ardent defenders would never consider those among their best films. So I'm aware of that now, but I would have been really excited to see those films in the 60s. I wouldn't have known in advance how they turned out. So your fantasy is to go back in time 60 years and see a bunch of really disappointing films by masters past their prime? You underestimate how much I just like going to the movies, Genevieve. <laughs> Plus, uh, being disappointed by the 60s is what the Edgar Wright film is all about. Tasha, want to tell us about this week's pairing? Sure. Last Night in Soho is about an aspiring designer from the British countryside who travels to London to attend fashion school, where she dreams of reviving the looks from the swinging 60s. Those dreams turn extremely vivid when she's transported back to the 1960s and becomes infatuated with a glamorous would-be lounge singer. As things in her dream world take a dark turn into sexual violence and possible murder, the two timelines start to converge, as do the two women who begin to resemble each other in uncanny ways. This immediately brought us back to Ingmar Bergman's Persona, one of the most talked about films of his career and of the 60s in general. Persona merges the lives of two very different people, one a revered stage actress who suddenly goes silent and motionless during a performance, the other a humble young nurse assigned to take care of her at a seaside retreat. 
But as they get to know each other, the film deliberately confuses their stories and identities and deconstructs the medium itself in the process. So this week, we'll dig into Persona and see if we can scratch the surface of one of cinema's most mysterious and scrutinized movies. And then next week, we'll jump ahead to the present day, then back again to the 60s for another intense psychodrama, Last Night in Soho. Please join us. In these words, the leading film critics of Europe have honored Ingmar Bergman's new film, Persona. Persona is a knowledge, a terrible knowledge of our loneliness, our estrangement, our inability to reach one another. It is a confession of our fears, of man, of failure, of death. Persona is the drama of a despair. A silence. A terror far too great to be named. Of life laid bare to the bone. Ingmar Bergman did not have anything to prove when he made Persona in 1966. After all, he had just wrapped up the Faith trilogy of Through a Glass Darkly, Winter Light, and The Silence, and he'd spent the previous decade making one masterpiece after another, including the one, two, three of Smiles of a Summer Night, The Seventh Seal, and Wild Strawberries. He was revered worldwide for the psychological intensity and aesthetic rigor of his work, his insight into human relationships, and his subtle, decade-spanning innovation of the form. He was even capable of making a good comedy on occasion. And yet, he surely felt he needed to prove himself. South of his native Sweden, Europe was exploding with filmmakers who were revolutionizing the medium, like Jean-Luc Godard and Francois Truffaut in France, Federico Fellini and Michelangelo Antonioni in Italy, and Louis Bunuel in Spain. And those revolutions were coinciding with generational turbulence in culture and politics too. In that context, Bergman was at risk of seeming ossified and irrelevant, an aging master working from his little island in the Baltic Sea, oblivious to a world that was threatening to pass him by. Persona changed that perception faster than you can say Brechtian alienation strategy. The opening seven minutes of the film are unlike any he had attempted before. A flurry of highly charged and symbolic images that begin with the self-reflexive touch of film inside a projector and culminates in the haunting image of a young boy reaching toward a woman's face in the projected image, a desire to touch someone who isn't physically present. In between, Bergman shocks us with flashes of dying humans and sheep, of a crucifixion, of an erect penis, images made more disturbing by a loud, arrhythmic score. Even for a director who had once had a man literally play chess with death, there was a lot of wild imagery to unpack here. Persona eventually settles into what seemed like a more familiar Bergman psychodrama, but even that starts to take a turn for the abstract. In the first of what would become a 10-film collaboration with Bergman, Liv Ullman stars as Elizabeth Vogler a stage actor who simply and suddenly goes silent in the middle of her performance, as if something has snapped inside her. Even though Elizabeth's not speaking and not really moving either, her doctor comes to the rather dubious medical conclusion that nothing is wrong with her mentally or physically, and perhaps all she needs is some time away at the doctor's seaside retreat to recuperate. Somebody, I think, needs to make a side quill about this doctor. Uh, anyway, uh, Elizabeth's nurse is a sunny young woman named Alma, played by B.B. Anderson, who was asked to join her on this weekend away. 
The two women bond in sunny weather, and Alma enjoys the opportunity to use the silent, attentive Elizabeth as a sounding board for some very personal stories. One such story is about an afternoon spent sunbathing in the nude with a woman she has just met named Katerina. When two curious boys start ogling them, Katerina surprised Alma by initiating a sexual encounter that left Alma pregnant. Since she was engaged, she opted to have an abortion, which left her with feelings of guilt. The relationship turns when Alma happens to open an unsealed letter written by Elizabeth that includes all of these very personal details from Alma's life, which understandably leaves Alma feeling betrayed. The sudden animosity between them seems to trigger a transformation, specifically when Elizabeth's husband mistakes Alma for his wife on a visit. The two seem alike somehow, and Alma voices a story of an unwanted pregnancies of Elizabeth's that seems to be a mirror image of her own, and ties all the way back to that early shot of the boy reaching for the woman's face. There's a lot to unpack in Persona, the Mount Everest of cinematic analysis, but what's surprising about the film is how purposeful and clearly articulated it is at its core, particularly the character of Alma, whose vulnerabilities are so nakedly exposed. Bergman, too, wants the audience to know that he's open to the world, which is why he's included footage of a man's self-immolation in Vietnam, and an image of Polish Jews captured after the Warsaw Ghetto uprising. He's also open to cinema, which we can see in a framing device that makes us aware that we are watching a movie. He's also open to interpretation, which we'll try to do after the break. Du Elisabeth, jag har tänkt på en sak. Jag tycker inte det är någon idé att du är kvar på sjukhuset längre. Jag tror bara att du tar skada av att vara här. Eftersom du inte vill fara hem så föreslår jag att du och syster Alma, ni kan flytta ut på mitt sommarställe vid havet. Va? Tror du inte jag förstår? Den hopplösa drömmen om att vara. Inte verka utan vara. I varje ögonblick medveten. Baksam. Och samtidigt avgrunden mellan vad du är inför andra och vad du är inför dig själv. Svindelkänslan och den ständiga hungern att äntligen få bli avslöjad. Att få bli genomskådad, reducerad. Att få till och med utplånad. Så, so, yeah, the usual opening question. What's your history with Persona and, and how does it hold up in the year 2021? I saw Persona for the first time almost exactly 20 years ago in a college course that was either a psychology course or a modernism course and i don't know which and i think it could be it could easily have been either based on the fact that we watched this film in it and i think maybe it was a censored for i don't know there was some stuff this time that i definitely didn't recall from that first viewing so i don't know if we saw like a safe for students version or if i just i don't know forgot but point is i don't i didn't have like a super strong memory of the events of the film because I think the events of the film are not like necessarily memorable on their own. It's more like the feeling of the film that sticks with you. Uh, and, and it did to a certain extent, but I think even more than that, what stuck with me in the 20 years between viewings is just the sense that this is a difficult film. 
difficult maybe isn't is an unfair word but it's a, uh, i don't know it, why that's unfair but sure. <laughs> <laughs> well it's a film that you i think you can get lost in the analysis thereof you know and there especially if you are a person with a who is you know drawn to narrative and you know to plot and i think this is something that will maybe come up when we talk about the edgar wright film a bit too but you know if you're someone who like kind of attaches to that it's not a film that you know, is easy to process. And I think it's appropriate that my only experience before this was in a classroom and academic setting that was primed for, you know, analysis. It is literally shown to us to teach us how to analyze it, you know. So it's a film that I think functions in that way. But watching it this time, I think I was able to maybe get lost in it a little more, not worry so much about you know, solving it or, you know, coming up with an idea that can be a five and a half page uh, double spaced paper uh, by the end of the week <laughs> about it, you know, <laughs> um, I just have to record a podcast about it. I used to talk about it with my, uh, my much smarter uh, friends uh, and see what they think Wait, it's all wanna, about. Do you do another podcast or something? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, guys. I, I, need, I need you to explain Persona to me. No, um, no, I don't need you to explain Persona to me. I think it's is what I'm getting at. Like, I don't think it is... Uh, useful to kind of pick apart like an answer to this film. But I think it is useful to like delve into the imagery and ideas and emotions of this film. Yeah, I also saw this film about 20 years ago. Uh, and I probably, I'm sure I would have gotten to it otherwise, but I also saw, I saw it indirectly as part of the class because it was part of a class that my wife was taking <laughs> on, on a, a Scandinavian cinema, uh, which was a, a class that she enjoyed and I sort of enjoyed uh, by association because I watched a bunch of movies with her. Uh, and it is, it is, you know, it, it's, you know, I'd seen a bunch of Bergman from before this, though not immediately before this. Um, some of his more famous films from the early 60s remain a big blind spot for me. And I've seen Bergman from after this, but this was kind of squarely in the middle of a bunch of Bergman I hadn't seen. But even saying that, it's really different from any other Bergman movie I'd seen before or since. It's it is such a strikingly different film, and I was I was really surprised by how much I kind of like what you're saying, Genevieve. Where, where the general impressions of the film remained very strong with me, but the, the specifics of what happened and, and what happens when within the movie had, mm. had kind of blurred over. And, and I'm not even sure that was, it takes 20 years to do that. <laughs> I think you could probably, I could pro probably say it about my, I watched it last week. I could probably say it about it just a week out from it too. And I, I think that's part of the elusiveness of, of this film, which, which I, uh, I, I find pretty re remarkable. I always thought of it as sort of like Bergman is huge in the fifties and, the French New Wave happened, and the other New Waves happened, but the French New Wave is especially. And then I think this is kind of his 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 whole Mayakovit moment. It's like here, I'll I'll show you just how much a film can eat itself, uh, and and uh, it's it's a remarkable film in that way. Yeah, of, of all the films we've talked about, I this one seems least relevant to talk about what it looks like in 2021. Uh, just specifically because there's nothing about it. You know, there's clothes of the era and uh, environs of the era and maybe even attitudes of the era. But the narrative itself doesn't feel particularly attached to a time. It's such an abstract. It's uh, such a deconstruction that these people don't feel like people of a time. They feel like symbols like conceptual ideas that keep mutating as the the movie goes on 
I'll push back just a little bit on that because there are some very specific references to to Vietnam. You know, that seems to be part of what sends uh, Elizabeth in, in, into into such a, a deep remove uh, as well. But I think you're right in general. You could you could probably drop in a contemporary reference uh, if you're if you're setting this film today, and it would it would work just as well. Yeah, but I mean, there's also a very prominent reference to uh, the atrocities of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Like the the sense is more about the like the atrocities of man's inhumanity to man than about this being a Vietnam era film specifically, or in in response to anything that happened in relationship to protests in Vietnam. Like as you say, th- there could just as well be a scene from the January sixth insurrection put in here, and it would kind of feel like it all had the same meaning. It's just. The things that uh, Elizabeth is recoiling from in humanity don't necessarily need to be tied to uh, a specific time and place, I think. I don't remember where I first encountered this film. Uh, In keeping with the design of Persona, I want to say that I first saw it in college and also that I saw it first wandering into a theater from the rain in uh, in New York City and it was playing instead of Home Alone for some inexplicable reason. And I'm, I'm also going to say that I encountered it for the first time after, uh, Scott reviewed it for the dissolve and I sought it out and watched it. So all of those things are equally true and none of them is true. And you can just, uh, keep on guessing. Um, but I mean, I have seen it before and I've had the same experience everybody is describing. It's a very elusive film. It's hard to hold in your head for long. And part of that is just the lack of linearity of it. Like, I think if you showed any, segment of this film to somebody, especially people in in film class, and said, what's this film about? They would have a very cogent, specific answer about who these women are in relation to each other and like what kind of Jungian tale is unfolding in terms of which one of them is clearly real and which one of them is representative of, of some sort of shadow self. But the scenes don't necessarily fit together in a way that supports any one reading. There's there's just never any sense that you're watching the same story necessarily that you were a minute ago. So, like, I think the quote about, like, all interpretations of this movie is are equally true is maybe overstating the case a little bit. But I think that you could sit down and write a 50-page scholarly paper on how Alma is having a breakdown and imagining Elizabeth and you could just as easily write a 50, 50 page paper on how Elizabeth is having a breakdown and imagining Alma, which is the uh, philosopher who has everyone turn on him in ridicule when uh, he he says that he has just proven the existence of God and he could just as easily prove the the unexistence of God. I think people would probably turn on you no matter what you said. But, you know, all things are sort of equally true here. As far as my history of with Persona, I think you'd have to go back to college where i was just you know in my immersive phase of seeing every possible thing at the library and and obviously bergman films were well represented you know in the library at that point and i think i went through them i don't know if i went through them cognizantly as you know in order but i think i watched them in a way that you probably would if you're doing kind of an intro to bergman i feel like the seventh seal was something i started with and i started pretty early with Wild Strawberries and Smiles of a Summer Night and your real canonical classics and and came to Persona a little bit later. And the thing that makes me kind of, that's kind of funny now in retrospect is that when I was in college, my favorite Bergman film was Wild Strawberries, uh, a film about, uh, you know, a guy who's, you know, getting old and, and kind of, you know, dreaming about and l- lamenting his lost youth. And that was weird. That was the film I connected to 
strongly in college. <laughs> and now as a grown up, <laughs> Persona is clear to me like the best thing he's ever done. I mean, that's the one that just, that this one, it just blows me away. So I have no, I, I can't really ac- account for that. But um, uh, yeah, obviously I think it holds up in the year 2021. And of course you can see its influence everywhere. <laughs> you know I mean? You know, David Lynch for one, I, I think would be, I, I don't think we'd see some of the some of the types of things we've seen from David Lynch films like uh, Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive and in Twin Peaks and that sort of thing without Persona. I think that's just one guy, but there's a lot of uh, this kind of doubling effect. And and I mean, the Vertigo has it too, but this is a very forward thinking and influential film. And I think it's got a, a real power to it. I mean, maybe maybe it is a defiant of an analysis, or maybe you can come up with uh, different takes that are maybe contrary to another take. But to me, the emotional core of the film is pretty well articulated and strong Uh, you know once you get past that first seven minutes and you also get rid of the last (laughs) couple of minutes i mean you have you know really you know the the stuff at the you know seaside home you know at least for a a good stretch is is very clear and compelling and emotional and you know and just you know and it feels very almost kind of meat and potatoes bergman in terms of you know, psychological drama, you know, and, and there were things that he would do later on. I mean, I think that, I, th- I think it's the passion of Anna that had a lot of like references to war and things like that in it. Do you have you seen that one? Anyone seen that one? I haven't passion seen that one. Anna? Yeah. Um, I think that kind of opened, opened things up a little bit to what was going on in the world, which was kind of an unusual thing for a Bergman film to do, you know, in a film like cries and whispers has a pretty similar intensity and kind of a focus on, on faces in composition, a really rigorous composition or similar compositions, I guess, to persona. So he was really developing into something here. This was a, a, both a radical departure and also kind of a transitional film for him. But I think it's just, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. It's, it's fun to try to work your mind around as a intellectual exercise, but I think it kind of hits you right in the gut too. Uh, and there are monologues in this film and images in the film i mean i think sven nickvist's photography is just staggeringly beautiful that really get you on a, on a on a very emotional level um you know beyond beyond you know scratching your chin over you know over whatever paper you might <laughs> be writing about it, it, it <laughs> i think it, i think it does have a power to it can i give my super hot take on this film yeah i don't think that elizabeth and alma look that much alike <laughs> like, no, <laughs> neither does neither does Mike D'Angelo. He wrote a review really? about this film. Really? Like, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. This may be the first and only time Mike D'Angelo and I have ever agreed on anything <laughs> in film. But <laughs> no, no, I'm in the same boat there. Both, both in terms of thinking they don't look much alike, which I'm actually glad for because uh, you know when when Bergman's playing tricks with time and identity being able to tell them apart kind of tells me when he's playing tricks if they looked exactly alike i think you could have the the same action of this film and it wouldn't necessarily register when they're trading places when it's you know the wrong quote unquote person uh in a given scene so I think that the symbolism of Alma believing that she looks like Elizabeth, I mean, she has that moment where she says like, oh, you know, I think we look so much alike, teehee, she says, comparing herself to an extremely famous actress. And then she immediately pulls back and is like, you know, you're, of course, you're much more beautiful. But, you know, the degree to which she sees herself mirrored in uh, Elizabeth 
I, I think is one of the biggest themes of the movie. She projects all of these things onto her when Elizabeth doesn't speak. You know, she she stops seeing her as a person and starts seeing her as like everything she wants her to be, this like endlessly receptive, like friendly, loving, caring ear who to to take in, to take on all of her weight and give her back unconditional love. And she's so outraged when she finds that Elizabeth is a person and has still has opinions and is is thinking about things other than what almost projected. So I think that, you know, we look exactly alike thing is just another form of, of projection. And it's intended to some degree to be a, a reflection of the fact that they're just spending so much time alone with each other. Like she's kind of lost a bit of her identity and is just seeing herself as, you know, fully equal to this incredibly famous artist. But, you know, Bergman's opinion on them looking exactly alike aside, I, I don't think the rest of us are meant to. Well, I think there's something to the fact that Elizabeth's an actress as well and there's something maybe a commentary here about almost the predatory nature of acting of 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 this Mm -hmm. woman who is silently observing alma and alma taking that as being a, a sort of sympathetic attention when in fact she's you know learning things that she's going to repurpose in a, in a way that that alma does not approve of that seems like a very actorly thing to do it also feels like a, a little bit of uh, something a film director would do too, a little bit of, of uh, misplaced or, or, or guilt that's been placed on an, on another profession that 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 any artist who draws on on the people around them um, has to feel a little bit. Yeah, I definitely read their relationship more in the vein of what Scott's talking about. Like Elizabeth struck me as a very active, passive presence. I feel like their conversations, even though Alma is has like kind of like, you know, she's very open, she's a chatterbox. I do kind of get the impression in those moments that Elizabeth is taking something from that interaction more than Alma is giving something, especially in the pivotal scene when Alma tells her story about sunbathing on the beach and she's like, she's very drunk. She's kind of lost herself. And it and the look on Elizabeth's face as she listens does kind of feel like she is absorbing uh, Alma to a certain extent, taking her in in a way that I think can be read you know, a little nefarious. I definitely felt it that way on this viewing for whatever reason. Um, it, I think it can also be read in exactly the opposite way, as we have said multiple times on this episode already. But as far as, you know, looking at it as an actor observing someone and taking what they observe to incorporate into a role. I think that squares with the idea that Elizabeth has gone silent because she is no longer has a role to play. Uh, she is maybe like looking for a new role or persona to form and to take from Alma in a way. I mean, I I think it's very significant that we get that one scene of Alma sort of opening her wrist and uh, allowing Elizabeth to feed on her blood like yep. a vampire or forcing her sort of in the middle of that shot. She grabs a hold of her head and the nature of the dynamic seems to change. So exactly what that relationship is to both of them, you know, they're kind of multiple interpretations, even in the middle of a single shot. Mm-hmm. But it does seem very much like um, in that moment after Alma makes her long and, and teary confession and breaks down, the look on Elizabeth's face is not comforting or or sad or empathetic. She looks satisfied. She looks mm-hmm. like she's just had a really good meal. She's got this <laughs> little Mona Lisa smile on her face as she pets Alma's head. 
that just really kind of uh, speaks to to being replete more than it speaks to helping somebody through a crisis. I mean, it's amazing how good Liv Ullman is in this movie. <laughs> and that, I mean, that is a character that doesn't really speak much at all, but like leaves such a impression just by, just through that those expressions through that level of attention but i i, I don't want to get uh, before we get too ahead of ourselves i want to go dial back a little bit to ask your response to the famous opening minutes uh, and what, what your like visceral reaction to that was and then what you significance i think you might assign to the drama that follows I mean, I took it as a personal affront that it starts with an image of a spider. Uh, but <laughs> a big, big, hairy big, spider, a, too. It's a gnarly, gnarly spider. Uh, so I didn't uh, appreciate that. But I was watching this with my husband, who had not seen it before. And he was fully unprepared for that opening and I think was very... Uh, concerned about what was <laughs> what was to follow based on that because um, if you if you don't know that the it's that's not the whole movie uh, I think it's uh, very jarring and upsetting but I mean it's, it's jarring and potentially upsetting even if you if you do know that I mean the score alone I think is very off-putting and, and, and purposely so not to mention the the imagery that accompanies it but um, yeah I don't really know what to make of it in sort of a broader analytical sense other than sort of the obvious connection between like cinematic imagery and the actual like go you know going inside a film and of course the the boy in the hospital reaching toward the projection of the the woman is a very obvious like cinema screen type of image but as far as like the spider and the sheep's eye and the erect penis that all is a little more confounding to me well, it's all hostile and discordant, and, and hostile is a good know, word. <laughs> and like, if you you know, just the 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 projector, you know, um, you know, coming to life is itself, you know, a really uh, upsetting image in some way. And it's it's parallel. It's bookended on the at the end of the film by by the by the light light dimming. But it also it just to me, I think it kind of sets this tone of of artistic creation as as an act of violence or aggression. And mm. I think you know, you you get that one shot of. Bergman and Nick Vist on the crane and it's it's kind of menacing I mean they're not menacing looking people particularly but <laughs> but the way that's filmed you know you're it's, it's it's like you're looking at because you're watching the people who make the movie it's like you're looking at something you're not so supposed to be looking at it, it is um there's something distant and forbidding about it in the same way that the the boy uh reaching for the screen and, and you know the these images that he'll never actually be able to touch but can only kind of look at and interpret it, it's and somehow it kind of gets to the heart of, of what it is to watch a movie in a way that doesn't necessarily make you feel comfortable about the act of watching movies yeah, there's something almost uh, relentless about it. The cuts back and forth to the film spooling through the projector just kind of hint at, you know, you're seeing these unpleasant things, uh, a giant hairy spider and a giant hairy scrotum and this sheep being bled out, or maybe it's a goat, it's hard to tell, like the struggling sheep. as it's yeah. as its blood is pouring into a bucket. But all of these things whisk by and then you keep cutting back to the projector as if to be reminded that the projector doesn't care what runs through it. You know, the, the projector is a device that has no ability to like pause at atrocity or pause at something lurid or pause at something unexpected. You know, I don't know how 
common uh, naked erections were in Swedish cinema at the time, you know, they're still not at all common in uh, in modern cinema. That's just sort of a, a shocking thing. But the projector doesn't pause. The projector is completely indifferent to what it's offering up. And that seems like a pretty cynical look at cinema. But the score and the like relentless strobing, the the kind of head hurting strobing of light during all of this reminded me an awful lot of uh, Gaspar Noe's Irreversible and the place that that film ends in just a kind of uh, discordant light show of trying to unsettle everybody as much as possible on the way out the door. The business with the sheep bleeding out and then that last squirmy close up of somebody reaching to touch its eyeball just reminded me a lot of Buñuel's Chan on with the the eyeball being slit. That's because that, the footage is from when oh, she is it actually? I, gosh, oh, it has been that. so long <laughs> since I saw that film. Uh, I did not know that at all. That's you don't you don't revisit that. Weekly? I, I, I if I were <laughs> to revisit YouTube. it, I would certainly do so in the weakest way possible. So wait, are any of those other uh, cuts like to your knowledge from other movies? I'm I'm not sure. I just I just I know hmm. that because of Wikipedia. <laughs> but, uh, uh, um, but that is where that's from. And and uh, similarly, uh, Genevieve, you're right. This is you did see a censored version of this. The the erect penis was cut from ah. uh, so to speak from from uh, U.S. and U.K. Uh, prints and the. Uh, very graphic description of the orgy was selectively translated um, <laughs> in, in, in in into English. That definitely squares with my memory. Then, okay. yeah, I don't remember being that explicit. And I remember this is like this is even more this is ex- as explicit as the beginning of of Godard's Weekend, which now I see, realize was was kind of a, a take on 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 this scene as well. But anyway, that's that's a whole other movie to get. Well, it's into. interesting to see you know Bergman kind of engaging. With the other Europeans at this at, with this film too, I mean, I think that was kind of the point mm-hmm. in a way of of making Persona. It is just to kind of kind of feel like he was part of that wave of cinema that was happening um, around him. Um, as far as the, the this opening goes, I mean, a couple of my takeaways from it is I think any time that you have any kind of self reflexivity with a camera with a projector, um, it is to remind the audience of the essential artifice and illusion of uh, the medium and uh, the fact that it, to be aware that that you to expect to be manipulated a little bit. So I think it's kind of softening us up for sort of the abstract convergence, I guess, that we experience later in the movie. Uh, and the other part of it is, I think that the boy in the projected image kind of gets reflected back upon later in the movie with regard to Elizabeth's son Mm -hmm. and her feelings about having a child and her feelings of disconnect from that boy who must feel, you know, in every way, like he is trying to reach her and, you know, who loves his mother and who is not getting the love back that he desires uh, it, it seems like those two things are related uh, at least to my yeah. mind yeah i definitely felt that too to the point where i kind of felt the temptation to literalize that opening a bit as being an illustration of elizabeth's breakdown of what happens to her that that makes her stop speaking it doesn't i don't think it quite works because she's not a film actress right she's a stage actress but there's reference to her appearing in a film at least. So, I, but I think she was primary. I think she's primarily known for her stage work. Right. Okay. But I, I feel like you know, if you if you wanted to go that route and kind of look at this like assault of images and 
pain through the context of a camera or of an audience of of, a viewer and then it kind of culminating in that shot of the boy that seems like a very direct reference to her son that we hear about later it does seem that this kind of opening turmoil could be sort of an evocation of what happened to land her there I don't know how strongly I feel about uh, <laughs> making that declaration, but like I said, the the presence of the boy in relation to what we know about Elizabeth's son definitely made me w- want to kind of try to. I mean, it's also just an evocation of sort of the artificiality of cinema in terms of here are a bunch of images that don't connect, but you're going to try to connect them, you know, in the same way the brain connects a bunch of uh, photographs that are run by them very quickly into the illusion of motion, which makes cinema possible. You know, it's a documented effect. If you show somebody a bunch of unrelated images, their brains will try to assemble them into some sort of story, will try to make meaning out of the sequence. And it's far from the first time the movie makes you conscious that you're watching a movie. It's it's far from the first time that it kind of makes a break to remind you of the artificiality of cinema. But why he leads with that, unless he's trying to kind of jolt people out of complacency, so they'll they'll have a little more, uh, you know, I, I, I also at the point where the film breaks down and melts. I did kind of think a little bit, I guess Gremlins 2 is a uh, <laughs> reference point for a lot of people there. But uh, go to Lean Blacktop if you wanted. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of too. Now, what it made me think of more than anything else was uh, Hanukkah's Funny Games. Mm. And like that movie doesn't give you a lot of like lead in or, or tease or awareness of what kind of trickery it's going to be up to later. You know, here from the start, like this is an artificial and, and conscious and, and filmic experience. So when things break down, it's maybe less of a surprise or less of a, a narrative disjunct. It's just kind of like, oh, we're we're kind of stepping back to this then. Not to sidetrack too much, but I I did finally make it all the way through Funny Games after on my third attempt, I think. But like I, I saw I saw the dog. I knew I knew the general purpose of the film. Like, nope, not tonight. <laughs> but I I did finally. Well, now you got to watch the American uh, version. I hear they're I hear they're very yeah, you different. Super, do not have to watch the American version. You don't have to do anything. I'm kind of curious about with, it though. Uh, those movies. It's good. It's like it's like it's in English, except it's Funny Games. So I don't you know. Yeah, the thing hearing everyone speak about the opening and you know and about different interpretations of it is like what's interesting to me about it is that is that it is of course endlessly analyzable but persona watching at this time is what gets you is just how much of an impact it has how how much of an emotional response or you have as a viewer to it it really has a lot of teeth to it a lot a lot of bite and, and i almost think that that is kind of what bergman was going for here to, to try to shake things up to try to you know he had just made you know the this god silence trilogy which were three extraordinarily good but also extraordinarily austere dramas about faith and i think that this was his opportunity to kind of like shake his audience up a little bit and shake up the scene and uh i don't know there's something just so exciting about watching it even before you start to you know try to wrap your brain around what is actually happening and what all of it means. I don't know that that's true for me. I, I think that this so many of these individual scenes, when they're allowed to play out at any length, they build up such emotional power. The interaction between the the two women in various emotional conditions, 
you know, there's there's the root of a, a really terrifying, like Hitchcockian thriller in here about a woman mm-hmm. who, you know, is suffering and then her caretaker goes mad and assaults her. But we kind of cut away from that and go in a completely different direction. There's a story in here about a woman who like invents a persona for herself to make her incredibly dull life bearable and and invents herself this like incredibly glamorous person who she has to take care of, but then gets jealous of. You know, there's a, a whole bunch of different, you know, as I say, you cut out one of these scenes and you hand it to somebody and, and say, what's the rest of this movie about? You're going to get 20 different movies. But for me, the the disjuncts where we move away from one of these stories into one that's not compatible with whatever we just saw in a strictly linear narrative fashion kind of undercuts some of the drama and some of the emotion. It's returning to that artificiality of cinema in a way that kind of repeatedly makes me go, well, okay, but I wanted to see what was going to happen in that story. Like, take me back to the story that you were just telling where this is true and this is true. And it has, and you've built up a great deal of narrative power instead of kind of rewinding to undo all of that and do this other thing instead. Yeah, I guess that kind of, it leads to that question about that, I guess, convergence point, right? Because this is, because after Alma sees reads the letter and has the reaction that she has to it and things really really come to a head to where she's almost going to throw you know boiling hot water in elizabeth's direction you know the film then starts to kind of shift into something else and and uh i guess for you tasha it seems to have some of its power has, has waned in that decision, which is a decision to, you know, on Bergman's part to do something else. And and there's an artistic reason for that, but I'm curious to hear uh, what others thought about how um, that convergence point is handled both dramatically and visually. I mean, I think one way of reading this is as a power struggle. And I think there's, you know, there is a a balance of power that shifts between these two women and that convergence that you're speaking of is, is a point where perhaps that's not even what the emphasis is anymore. But I do think the end of the film, I guess I don't want to jump ahead and talk about the end yet, but I don't know if we want to read the end as, 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 the, as sort of a final judgment on who wins that power struggle or not. Before we get to the ending ending, I kind of want to get everyone's thoughts in relation to what Scott's asking about the the double monologue. When we hear about, uh, we hear Elizabeth's story and we hear it twice from two different angles. It sounds like from the light reading up I did that that was not initially planned. You know, it was filmed twice as is pretty standard for something like that, but rather than, you know, choosing a take or mixing the takes together, Bergman just put them both back to back. And I don't know, I feel like that maybe muddles whatever is happening as far as their convergence more than it illuminates anything for me. I don't know. I don't know if I actually like that move that much. So I'm curious what others think of it. Well, I think it kind of connects to the whole self-awareness and, and you know, self-referentiality that starts to be and ends the film and kind of runs throughout it. But it's it's like, what is your reaction based on whether you're watching the, the speaker or the person reacting to the story? Um, and, and, you know, you have to, uh, it is, it kind of heightens the artificiality of it, but also kind of forces you to examine how film makes you feel based on what it, what it shows you. 
It also seems like it makes you examine kind of how each of them are performing, not the actresses, but the characters themselves. You know, during the course of that conversation, or really that that one-sided monologue, both of them are experiencing things, and we're kind of zooming in on what that is. But I, I don't know. I mean, for me, the most insightful part of the movie comes fairly early on when that doctor that Scott was so fascinated with <laughs> talks about how she she understands perfectly what Elizabeth's problem is. And it's basically just the artificiality of living, the, yeah. the difficulty of knowing that you're presenting yourself at all times, that living is living out a role and that she's kind of consciously taken a step back from that because she's to some degree overthinking herself and doubting the reality of everything she she says and thinks and does. So when we take this moment to like watch them both close up as they carry through this fairly significant moment for both of them, we're watching their particular roles that they're playing and how those roles different, how the response is different, how their faces are different, uh, how each beat of the story affects them very differently from each other. And again, it's kind of a, a step outside of the narrative illusion of filmmaking in a way that undercuts the drama for me. It's a really interesting choice because it's not one that you see often. And I think anything unique can be really interesting in cinema. But I, it doesn't work for me as far as like forwarding the actual drama, whatever that drama is, forwarding whatever connection is between them. Because in this case, they're they're wholly separate. It feels mm -hmm. like either of them could be sort of it, a, a weird thing to say since Elizabeth's just receiving it. But it feels like a stage monologue, you know, a, an audition monologue, almost uh, distanced from from everything around it, just kind of presented as. A high quality piece of stagecraft, but very consciously a piece of stagecraft. And I think I think there's kind of something to where Bergman is is just painting the, this beautiful canvas that he keeps slashing <laughs> over and over again. You know, I mean, like because I think there's again there's there is a a film in here, or maybe multiple films that are on their own in a very in a very straightforward way, in a very Bergman like way, would be you know immensely satisfying and interesting to dig into i mean just you know just that you know incredible monologue that alma gives a, about her in, encounter with katarina and the and, and the boys and all that other, other stuff i mean that is uh i mean that alone there's something so much to kind of unpack about her feelings about that and then and then also about if we could hear from elizabeth uh, her feelings of maternal ambivalence the kind of interesting mirrors uh, the interesting way that there those different recollections uh, stories sort of rhyme uh could be conventionally quite compelling as you know what we might expect from bergman but then bergman has this impulse with this movie from the start to double and to slash and to you know it to kind of shake things up you know in a way that's you know artistically compelling and very disturbing but maybe maybe not uh, satisfying doubles and slashing it really sounds like you're moving us into our next film here scott <laughs> yeah you know what i think maybe maybe i am uh there's just again an endless amount to talk about uh with personas but we're not done talking about it uh we will come back to persona next week when we deal with last night in soho uh but for now uh it's time for feedback
now it's time for feedback, where we answer any questions and respond to any comments about our episodes or anything else in the world of film. First up, we get to talk about Dune some more, which I always like. Uh, Genevieve, do you want to read this one? Sure. Kyle in Chicago offered a few comments on Dune, but we'll focus on two. He writes, thank you for the great episodes on Lawrence of Arabia and Dune. You're welcome. Thank you, Kyle. He continues, I had some thoughts about your Dune discussion in particular that I'd be interested to hear you all talk about a bit. I've only read the book once, but from what I remember, Liet Kynes may be the second most important character after Paul in terms of the future of Arrakis, because she slash he lays the plans that eventually make it a fertile world, per the appendices. So it feels like the gender and race swap in the film is a small switch narratively that has pretty significant meaning for fans of the book, which I thought was interesting. You all talked about wishing the movie had an intermission and then continued with part two. But after my first viewing, I really felt like this adaptation should have been done in three parts, as the book is. To me, it felt as though the film had a finale, with the assault by the Harkonnens and Sardaukar on the palace and then a wind down that should have led into an ending. But instead, it continues for another half hour to 40 minutes. I love the first hour and 40 minutes to two hours, which covers the story in part one of the book, and then was exhausted by the fact that it kept going on for far too long after what felt like a brilliant climax, narratively and spectacle-wise. I also think it hurts that nothing in that final stretch is as visually stunning as everything that comes before. P.S. If you could let me know where to see it in full IMAX in Chicago, I would be extremely grateful because I haven't been able to figure out what theaters have full IMAX and what's just on a big letterboxed screen. I'll answer uh, that question. Yes. None of, none of them. There's, there's no Zero. real. I, I mean, those are probably really nice big screens, and you know, not a bad way to see the movie. But, but there, we, we are IMAX. Yeah, in nice Chicago. big surcharge is what <laughs> I don't it know. is. I, I saw it at the, at the Regal and Western and Fomax, and I thought it was a pretty brilliant experience. It's a, it's a huge clear screen All without right. a lot of uh, light bleed on it. I, I enjoy it there. So 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 what what about substantively the responses here to a couple of Kyle's comments? I think what he's talking about that would be a great place to end it if this were a TV miniseries. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think it's probably or, too or much story a, left. A, a, like a Marvel movie where the the next uh, several are already planned out. That's what it means. Right? Me think yeah, of, but yeah. It's, it's a cliffhanger. It's not necessarily a cliffhanger that feels like the end of half a story. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I just don't think that you can walk out on a movie where <laughs> I just I always come back to the TV show Smash, which is about uh, people trying to put together a Broadway musical about the life of Marilyn Monroe. And there's this big plot beat in the first season where the these extremely experienced Broadway writer uh, and book writer, music Bobby writer Bobby. people like actually stage a version of the the play that just ends with Marilyn Monroe dying on stage you know no song no commentary no anything just but she's dead now uh, everybody can shuffle out in, in quiet and they cannot figure out why it doesn't play they're like but that's how it ends and I feel like the ending of if the this movie ended with okay well the uh, Harkonnens killed just about everybody uh, the end go home people wouldn't necessarily want to come back you know it's a big downer ending to live with for two, three years, whatever. A movie like this that is heading into the next movie needs to give you something to hope for, like some reason to go back, whether it's uh, we got to catch up with the the hobbits that they're taking to Isengard or whatever. There's got to be some reason to come back. It, I just don't think it would have worked if it had ended earlier. There are hobbits in this movie? Yeah. Do, do you I not remember that? <laughs> Keith, you're not off in the middle of the film again. 
Um, possible. I, I love that. I love that Tosh is still keeping the Smash discourse alive. I know. I, it's it's just it's uh, one of my it, it's one of those like go-tos. symbolic go tos that I will just never <laughs> let go of because it's so hilarious to me. Um, we should we should start a side uh, the Smash cast. <laughs> the, the, um, anyway, uh, you just want there. another excuse to say smash that subscribe button, uh, <laughs> Scott. Oh I know you. <laughs> I do. Um, I guess uh, one thing I will say, I do. I do think the film ends in the right spot i mean for one we get some good action in that that last bit i mean we we do get to see paul and jessica escape i guess and uh that's a kind of a thrilling sequence and we we see paul you know kill someone for the first time and and are left with that as well so we also get a lot of the desert which is like really important (laughs) you know like everything prior to that like it's just we only get glimpses we don't spend sustained time in the desert and you know we as far as spectacle goes like yeah we see the sandworm before that ending but like we really see the sandworm (laughs) you know after uh, that assault so like i don't yeah i i can't really get behind giving up all that for the the sake of a third part. We also, you know, get that all important moment where Paul actually makes a decision, where he actually takes action. And you know, if we if we'd ended with the Harkin and Raid and and people dying, there never really comes a point where he becomes a character. He's just a, a victim being carried along by events. So part of the promise of the next movie is like, okay, he's the reluctant Messiah has stepped up instead of just uh, sitting in the background saying, I don't want to, he's made his first choice down the road that the movie keeps promising he's going to go on. So in short, we're, we're, we're telling Kyle, uh, thank you for enjoying the show, but you cannot <laughs> see, you cannot see Dune in IMAX and we don't, we, we, we all disagree with your opinion. Well, well, well we, I, we have I, to definitely his agree. First question. Okay. Yeah, the right. First okay. Part. Yes. Yeah. All right. All right. I, I agree with that. Okay. There certainly. you go. So, Le- Liat Kind, so hit me. Although, I mean, I, I think that this movie downplays Liat's role. Yes. Uh, you don't really get that sense of uh, her setting a bunch of, of things in motion or uh, predicting a bunch of things, which is sad because then you you don't get the great moment of Paul Atreides like, standing up to the Fremen and, and telling them that he is their duke and uh, them having no idea what that means and not caring until somebody comes in and says, uh, as, as Liat foretold, and then they all cheer, which is just a, another like running in joke in my life i i'm sorry that we do not get to uh spread the the in joke as liette foretold <laughs> which is something i say as, as people who follow my twitter or speak to me in person know i, I say that far too much but liette doesn't foretell a whole lot here like her importance is mostly backloaded into kind of the final moments of the movie and i i don't think she gets a enough setup here to be the significant and important character that i think kyle is kind of hoping she is here we'll learn about the fremen's plans in the next movie we don't necessarily the character doesn't necessarily need to be around for us to kind of see what the what the overall scheme is but we're getting ahead of ourselves there uh we'll have to wait for another what two <laughs> two and a half years two years for the next one to come out what? but uh, until no. then and, and don't worry he's already saying that he's interested in dune 3 it's just going to be you know continuing with the next book in the in the line yeah maybe so uh, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations and, and anything else Dune related. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. Uh, to reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. 
That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho, another wildly expressive psychodrama about two different women whose lives and identities converge. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or you can subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. If you want to hear it without ads, and while surrounded by extra Next Picture Show written and recorded content, come support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, please convince your doppelganger to smash that Next Picture Show subscribe button. Smash! (laughs) 